0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to season six. Yes, can you believe it? Over a year ago, I actually started this podcast, and it was a little podcast all by itself. It was just me just talking to my friends who are in the performing industry, and I feel like it has grown a lot over the past year or so, and and if you've seen it for the past uh, several episodes, I do feel like it has grown to a point where it, it does feel like it's more about the performing artist, and the performing artist is like, it varies over, it's like, what is a performing artist? You know, it could be, oh, it's, you could usually just say, oh, actor, actress, but it is more than just being an actor and actress and all that stuff. But today I'm actually talking to my first comic book person, curator, what have you. He's a writer uh, for not only comics that he's done for DC, Marvel, MS Comics, but he's also one of the... Uh, Produces for the TV show Supergirl. He's also done the TV show. He's also written and produced the show Zoo, uh, The Ringer. Uh, is, uh, he's written. A co- he's written for the cartoon Avengers Assemble. Uh, Jay Ferber, uh, take it away. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, so, Jay, how did you? Uh, Okay, since I want to talk about, since I, as I would start talking to you before, it's like, I kind of like want to know about the comic side. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you a big fan of comics growing up?
1: Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I got into comics probably through Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, you know, I was a big Super Friends guy and then discovered comics just at my local, you know, corner store pharmacy. And uh, from there was just kind of a lifelong fan, uh, just, uh, loved comics, um, wrote and drew my own as a kid. You know, I still have drawers full of old comic books that I made. Uh, and then, you know, got more serious about it in high school. I, I took art class and, and, you know, continued writing and drawing, uh, when uh, decided I wanted to be a comic book artist. And so I went to college as an art major my first semester uh, oh. <laughs> and didn't work out. Uh, I, I I just didn't, I think I had some innate talent, uh, but nowhere near the discipline, uh, or, or patience to, to, uh, to learn and grow as an artist. Uh, I wanted to move on. You know, I didn't have the patience to take a full day to draw a single picture. I wanted, my mind was moving faster and, uh, it kind of came to a head when my, one of my art professors pulled me aside and said, you know, if, if you want to draw comics, you're going to have to learn how to draw. And I was like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, you're probably right." And uh, you know, did a little soul searching and uh, a couple of days later changed majors to English and focused on writing and yeah. uh, uh, been much happier ever since to let someone else uh who's more uh uh better suit, patient, talented, driven, yeah. disciplined all of that. Let somebody else draw, I'll focus on the writing I, I realized ultimately that I wanted to tell stories and as a as a kid I thought drawing comics was the way to do that And it yeah wasn't Until I got into college that I realized like no I can write and that's still storytelling yeah and uh you know there's other ways to do that and that got me kind of focused on writing novels comics uh, that sort of thing and, and then after college you know I bounced around for a few years and then uh started making some friends and I made friends with a a young woman named Devin Grayson who was just starting to break into DC Comics. And she sorta, you know, kind of put her foot in the door for me and and held it open and uh, made some introductions. And I was able to uh, pitch on some projects and meet with some editors. And one of them finally took a chance on me at Marvel. And that was my my big break, was writing uh, an issue of what if uh, for Marvel.
0: So, in, and in terms of writing comics, uh, what exactly is, it? like, is it, writing comics the same way as you write a script is like, oh, it's not, it's not like, oh, interior, you know, Bruce Wayne's be- you know, bedroom, it's not like that. In so, like, how is it different in terms of just writing a, 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 a te- you know, a teleplay, you know, which is a TV script?
1: Mm -hmm. it's it's there are similarities and differences uh in in tv and film a script there are certain rules you have to follow with a script in terms of formatting and 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 just so that everyone reading it is on the same page and and you know there's different shorthands and 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 that sort of thing with comics there's it's any anything goes uh i think if you line up 10 comic book writers and look at each of their scripts all their scripts are going to look totally different in terms of format, uh, margins, font, how they convey what they want, uh, which is, I think, uh, great because you can kind of write a script however you feel is the best way to communicate your ideas. Uh, There's kind of two schools of thought. There's the full script version, which is a little more like a a movie script, where you are breaking down panel one, here's what we're seeing here's the dialogue, here's the caption. Panel two, here's what we're seeing, here's dialogue, that sort of thing. And you break it down page by page, panel by panel. The other version is what's commonly known as the Marvel method, where it's much looser. And instead of writing a script, you would say, pages one through three, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin are fighting in Midtown Manhattan, and... By the end of page three, Spider-Man has webbed up the goblin, left him hanging to a lamppost and swung off. And then that's all you give them. And the artist choreographs it and builds it into panels. And then once the art is done, you then circle back as the writer to write dialogue to accompany those panels based on what the artist has drawn. Um, Those are the two different broad stroke methods. Um, There's... I kind of write in between where there are some scenes that I have a more clear view of, especially kind of talking scenes where the dialogue is important. And so I'll write out one, this guy's saying this panel two: this guy's saying this. But then if I hit a big visual scene where it's a big action sequence, I'll sometimes take a step back and say, okay, for these five pages, it's a huge fight. Here are some moments that I want to highlight or not, but I give I live the, I give the artist a lot more freedom to choreograph and and block and and lay the whole thing out uh, just so it gives a little more give and take uh, and then even if I'm writing a script where I write all the dialogue up front I always go back in and adjust it after the artist has drawn it uh, just to better match the dialogue you know an, an artist may draw an expression that that captures the character's emotions so well you don't need dialogue and you can remove it from that panel, that sort of thing. So editing kind of after the art comes in uh, is I think useful and will help kind of make the package more complete.
0: Uh, Now, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Now you mentioned uh, Marvel, the Marvel Marvel method, uh, which is essentially, I don't want to say like fill in the blank and then just like something to that effect, but, in terms of how, cause the way, like I, I assume nowadays, like it's more along the lines, of, oh, people are still drawing stuff There is still hand drawn and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But is there more leaning towards like computerized is like, is it still, is it like a mix mash of both computer work and also hand drawn work now? Or is it just yeah, like- I
1: mean, it. It it depends on the artist. There are some artists who are still traditional. Everything's on paper. It's inked on paper, that sort of thing. Uh, I think I I would say probably 95% of comics are colored on computer these days, Uh, if not all of them. There might be some that are still colored the old fashioned way, but I kind of doubt it. Um, but there were also artists who work digitally, who, who yeah. never touch paper, and everything's done on the computer from the layout all the way through the process. Um, when I broke in in the late 90s, I had to fax or FedEx pages, uh, script pages, to the office at Marvel and DC. Uh, email was just becoming a thing, and editors often had personal email accounts, but there was no... like. Marvel email account. Marvel was officially not allowed to accept scripts by email. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes the editor would say, yeah, fax it in, but could you also email me a copy to my personal account just so I have it? And then over time, it became much more. Now everything is over email. Yeah. You're not faxing anything. Uh, so that kind of stuff has evolved. Um, but it still kind of varies creator to creator as to just how much is sort of old school. School and how much they're leaning into technology.
0: Yeah, uh, I remember like last year or so, I had to actually fax in something, uh, <laughs> like something like uh, what was it? Yeah, like I either it was either last year or maybe the or two years ago. I had to fax something, and I was like, I haven't even used a fax in right. like like at all, like because nowadays it's just like oh, just email me all that stuff or just text That's... me the details and all that stuff. So it, I, I do feel like email is a lot more productive because you do get the entire thing yeah uh thing and i do and if you're doing faxes then like 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 i'm just imagining it's like if you're faxing essentially five script pages or something like that is those five script pages going to be like looked okay like on the other end because when you right like you know will it you know um be messed up because of the the print not working and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and now if you just email it, it's like, oh, you know, here's all the five pages that I have in crystal clear detail, all that stuff. Um,
1: yeah. Much more efficient.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned Marvel before, and you mentioned the what if. Uh, what what if did you get on their radar radar that allowed them to say, hey, you know, this guy is this guy's you know rights good.
1: Well, uh, it's funny. I don't. I'm trying to think because I didn't pitch them the what if idea I had just kind of struck up a correspondence with the editor a guy named Frank Pitarisi uh we were both big soap opera nerds uh and we kind of bonded over our uh, love of General Hospital ah, and Good all General Hospital yeah so he didn't the book was slated to be canceled and so he thought okay the book's already being canceled like how 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 you can't screw it up. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> what's the worst that could happen? They cancel it. They cancel it again. Uh, and so he offered me the last issue, and they already had the basic idea, which was, what if the Marvel heroes and villains never returned home from the Secret Wars, the big cross that they did back in the eighties? Uh, and so I think I was given that sort of springboard idea, and then went off and constructed a pitch about what battle world would look like. I think we were saying it was like 20 years later or something. Uh, So the heroes and villains were all older and they had settled down and had started families. And so the story was about the offspring of these Marvel and DC villains who were now teenagers and were carrying on their struggle. Uh, And it was just a fun playground, uh, a really fun what if. And uh, it was well received and Frank and I liked working together and so, not too long after that, uh, Frank was editing Generation X and the writer was leaving and he asked me to try out for the slot. So I, I pitched, you know, kind of my vision for what I would do with the book. And a few other writers did the same and I lucked out and they gave it to me. And that was my first regular series.
0: Now, Generation X was, I'm trying to remember, uh, essentially, uh, I, I might be wrong, but of course, there's also a, a, a Marvel TV movie called Generation X. I'm trying not like to cr- cr- uh, crisscross it's the same thing, but Generation X was essentially uh, the new X. Well, not like the the new mutants, but they're essentially like the new crop of X-Men that just popped up. Yeah, uh, being taught by maybe Emma Frost or it was
1: being, yeah, somewhere. it was they were, they were being yeah, they were they were. Instructed by Emma Frost and uh, originally Sean Cassidy, Banshee. Uh, I don't think he was still around in the book when I took over. I honestly can't remember. Uh, but yeah, it was essentially the New Mutants. It was the yeah. next generation of X-Men being trained, learning how to use their powers, going to school, that sort of thing. And It was a lot of fun. I was on the book for about a year, I think.
0: Uh, in, in terms of now... Yeah, again, I got a lot of comic things to actually about because of, uh, because of how versatile. Um, how did you, or, like, since you were able to essentially cross brain between both the, uh, DC and Marvel, how did you uh, essentially not like jump ship, but were you essentially working on a, a comic, uh, Marvel comic at the time and then? telling them, like, oh, and a week later, I'm actually doing a DC comic. Like, how how does that juggling, yeah, how does essentially juggling, oh, I got to work on a Marvel thing this week, and then next week I got to work on a DC comic?
1: Yeah, it's just, you just have to do it. I mean, if if you're so lucky to be getting work from both companies, uh, I wasn't exclusive to either one. Uh, So I I think I worked for both at the same time. I'd have to look back and... Uh, but, but yeah, well, no, in fact, I know I did because I, it's funny. The first, I told you about the what if story. Yeah. And around that time, there was an editor at DC named Eddie Braganza, who I was also kind of, I had been introduced to and we've been chatting a little bit and he was old friends with Frank. And so Eddie had heard that Frank gave me this gig on the what if, and Eddie was like, Oh, well, if you're good enough for Frank, I'll try you out. He gave me like a 10 page, wonder girl story that was going to be in an anthology and that book actually came out before what if so Mm -hmm. i lived the what if gig first but my dc work was the first one that was published first oh wow Uh, but they you just have to kind of juggle it and and you know know your deadlines and and know that okay if this book is due on this date that's the one i have to work on first and then turn my attention to the other one uh and it's sometimes it's complicated. Sometimes you you have to work on both in the same day, or or yeah. you know you're working on a Marvel book, but a DC editor is calling you with questions about the DC thing you were working on. Uh, so it's just a, a constant sort of juggling act. Um,
0: now, have but, you done editing on your own work, like as an editor, or is it just strictly as a writer?
1: Uh, I mean. At Marvel in DC, I had actual editors uh, assigned to wow. the books. Um, when I was doing work at Image, there's no editor there. So yeah, I was acting as my own editor and kind of acting as the editor for my creative team, the my artist and colorist and letterer. Uh, there, my role was very much sort of writer slash editor.
0: Okay. Uh- yeah, because I was—I always wonder was like, as you're a writer, do like do you edge your own work, or are you just essentially just like here's my here's my canvas, and have someone else essentially look over and says, okay, it's good, but I gotta just smudge out a couple of details and all that stuff. Sure,
1: I mean, I would certainly, you know, edit anything for Marvel or DC before I sent it in. I would make sure that it was as good as I could make it, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wasn't formally an editor. There would always yeah, be okay. an editor at the end of the chain who would. You know, give me notes, give me feedback, make additions, corrections, that sort of thing. Uh, whereas at Image, I was doing that all on my own.
0: Now, and this is a big question I do want to ask: is like when you're running a book for either DC or Marvel, do you have to follow a protocol? Is like, oh, I'm like this week I'm writing a story for Wolverine, but Wolverine is having uh, has a current storyline arc with Ultron. So how do I? not mess up anything that's currently in the storyline with Ultron while writing my own like Wolverine uh storyline it's like yeah like, like what protocol do you have to follow in order to like oh you know uh character A can be used but character B is you know he's currently already in something with character B is like how do I not make sure character B is not at all like
1: yeah that that that's the challenge that's uh you know when I was writing Titans for instance at DC I had uh Nightwing was in the book and uh Jesse Quick and uh Donna Troy and Nightwing in particular had his own series at the time yeah so I couldn't give Nightwing like a romantic storyline in Titans because that was taken care of in his own book you know I couldn't I basically had to put him back the way I found him in every story, because any, any real changes to him would happen in his own title. Uh, and that's common at, at Marvel and DC. And that, that's one of the editor's biggest jobs is to kind of manage all of that, to make sure that what Nightwing is doing in Titans doesn't interfere with what he's doing in his own book or yeah. in if he's guest starring in Batman that month. That's the editor's job is to kind of coordinate all that. And as a writer, you know, if I would want to do something with Nightwing, hey, can I break his leg? You know, it's important to my story that he gets injured. Can I break his leg? And they'll say no. You know, he can't have a broken leg in the Nightwing comic. But conversely, because the Nightwing comic would outrank Titans, and yeah. I would get note of, oh, Nightwing's breaking his leg in in his comic, so you need to have him on a, on crutches in Titans. Yeah, and you have to make that work, uh it's just kind of the nature of the beast that these characters they're never really yours. Uh, you're always. Kind of at the whims of of the company and kind of the higher needs.
0: Yeah, I always, uh, Matt, because I always because because especially when you're doing a crossover, especially uh, like say like a Bat Family crossover, is where it's like, oh, you know, Batman has a whole thing with your Joker, you know, the Red Hood, you know, the Red Hood comes out of nowhere or something like that, and that's the sense you know, it, it's like, you know, it could be something similar to that, but then you know, the Red Hood could be in his own uh comic book, you know, like Red Hood and the Outlaws, and then you have Joker having his own little, like, say, two or maybe even three issue own miniseries, something like that. And it's one of those things that you have to juggle a lot, especially as a writer, because I know, yeah. because I would just constantly go back and forward to my own writing. It's like, okay, you know, this character, you know, later has to do all that, and don't make sure this character has you know all that stuff. So I imagine writing, especially when you have to essentially connect to a lot of connected uh, continuity, I should say, or yeah, intercontinuity between characters. I say it's probably a lot more hard as a writer because you have to make sure nothing happens during your issue, so that another issue, if something does happen, you could have you could just say, okay, this is I'm picking up the pieces. It's like oh, um, the Riddler, just like escaped from Malcolm's Asylum, but in my issue, Riddler hasn't escaped from Malcolm's Asylum. He's just kind of like just standing there in the background just like touring with uh, Robin over or something about like some riddle about you know, the riddle of the day or something like that. So I imagine it's like when you have like those type of moments, it's like it's easy because you know, you easily get around to it. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you're working on a more Staying alone series something like that that's when it's a lot more difficult because it's just like oh you know you're not really tied to all this but you're still kind of like tied to mm-hmm. the notion of what is connected to what is already happening because you know uh, like what was it, 10 like 10 15 years ago no 15 years ago when the the new 52 happened and all this stuff like oh Superman's gone it's like and all the you know all this stuff like just like all these people just like disappeared or whatnot. Like Batman's not even there anymore. So it's like trying, and then suddenly it's like, oh, they had this whole year of this like filling in the blank, and then suddenly when you're reading this this thing, and then suddenly Batman comes back. It's like, man, what happened? You know, it doesn't really make sense because you're just reading something that just shows you, that tells you what's happening in between that one year, and then suddenly right. it's like, oh, Batman's already back, Superman's back. Then you kind of like already know what's going to happen. So it's like it's. I imagine it's like that has to be that has to be like the most difficult job as a writer, especially for comic book, because you're not trying to tread over someone else's toes. Especially if you just want if you just want to write one issue of just like say, hey, you know, you know, let's just have one issue of Wolverine just having a one like a hangover style like a comedic adventure, and then the next issue he has to deal with Ultron <laughs> So it's like, yeah. so it's I. Yeah, I, I do think that trying to tread over, not, not over your toes, but also like other people's toes, especially, that has to be one of the hardest jobs as a writer, as a comic book.
1: It's, uh, it's tough. That, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. And, and these days, I haven't worked on a Marvel or DC comic in a long time. So a lot has changed since I was yeah. there. Uh, but they, you know, they, they, they have like writers retreats where yeah. you know, a lot of their regular writers will get together and kind of ha- hash this stuff out together. Uh, and, and that I think makes it uh, a little more manageable because everybody's kind of in the same room and you're, you're brainstorming together. Uh, so yeah, it is very collaborative because everything is so tied together these days. Uh, but it's just the reality. It's the nature of the beast. Like if you truly want to write your own thing where, you know, you have total control, that's what image comics is for, or, or, you know, any creator owned book, uh, where you're creating your own your own comic as opposed to writing something for Marvel or DC, where you know that it's going to have to tie into everything else they're doing and be subject to, you know, the, the needs of, of the company.
0: Yeah. Especially if it's just like a standalone story, you just want to write. Uh, yeah. but speaking of MS comics, uh, how did you get into, uh, how did you get into Image comics or at least work for MS comics?
1: Yeah, that was just a, uh, I had, I was at Chicago, uh, Wizard World Chicago one year, uh, after I'd been at Marvel in DC for a couple of years and I was taken out to lunch or to dinner rather, uh, by Jim Valentino, Hmm. who was the publisher at the time. Uh, it was a bunch of us, not just the two of us, but uh, he took a whole group. We went out to dinner. Uh, and I was just hearing all these other creators who were doing books and image, just talk about their experiences and how creatively fulfilling it was because there's no interference, uh. I was said, that, that sounds fun. And, and I, I, at that point in my life, I was all about superheroes. And I asked, yeah. and at that point, Image was doing very little but with superheroes. And I asked Jim, like, would you guys ever do a new superhero book? And he was like, we would love to, you know, what do you got? And I went away and gave it some thought and came up with this superhero soap opera uh, called Noble Causes. Um, and I found a creative team. I found my own artist and my own colorist and letterer. And we all put our heads together and came up with this pitch and Image liked it. And that was my first experience with Image and I've been working with them pretty steadily ever since.
0: Uh, now, like you said before with Image, you're essentially your own writer, your own editor, essentially your own like, not like one main crew, but just like one person crew Whereas it's just like, uh, obviously you're not gonna be drawing your own thing because unless you are, unless there are, uh image comic and i mean there are probably people in the image uh things who actually do draw their own work and write their own work. oh yeah there's yeah. many yeah yeah um do you feel like a, there's a lot more creative control in terms of just writing your own work or yeah okay because i, I was gonna actually actually it was like you feel like the do you feel more control uh in control of your own work or do you just feel like better when you're just working on a uh, project that's like similar to uh like a mobile dc thing where it's just like oh even though i have this like protocol all that stuff i do feel like a lot more like you know what i mean
1: yeah no i i mean it, everybody's tastes are different but for me i i much prefer doing my own thing where i can maintain more control uh rather than just being kind of sub to you know whatever's happening in another comic at DC that's going to interfere with what I want to do. Uh, so for me, yeah, I'm uh, doing my own thing. Is it makes me much happier than uh, than doing stuff uh, for some for someone else's characters.
0: Uh, now, does Image Comics do like their own brand crossovers? Where it's just like, oh, you know, all these people are going to be. I think they probably do like their own crossovers and whatnot, but. Mm-hmm. Like, what is like the protocol for when they do have to do a crossover between uh, other Emma's characters?
1: Uh, well, they never have to. I mean, that's the beauty oh. of Image is that like any book that I create for them, I own or with, with the artists. Uh, but so Image can't make me do anything. Uh, they can't make me put any other character in the book. Oh. They can't make me use my character in, in one of theirs. Uh, so they don't tend to do crossovers. They've done a couple over the years, uh, mainly just with their superhero books. Um, so my my characters have appeared in some of Robert Kirkman's books, and I've been nice. fortunate to have his. You know, he's let me use Invincible a couple times. Uh, Savage Dragon uh, was always really good about. You know, I, I've used Savage Dragon a couple times, and my characters have appeared in his book. Uh, but there, it's really just a matter of, you know, I would call up Eric Larson or Robert Kirkman and say, hey, you know, could I use Invincible in this issue? And he'd say yes or no. And that was that. There was no red tape or paperwork or, or anything like that. It's just kind of a handshake. Uh, you know, it's up to the individual creators. We own it. So it's, it's our call as to how we want those characters used.
0: Uh, and like... Hearing Invincible actually does bring up a good point because they kind of like segues, segues right into the next thing, which is a, which is a television work. I know, sure. yeah. I know you're you worked on television a lot. Uh, you wrote and you were run one of the writers and one of the producers of uh, uh, of Zoo, uh, The Ringer. And currently, Super—I uh, know I'm probably missing a couple of others, but you know it's all right. Yeah, currently, Supergirl too. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen you also on uh, Superman and Lois, I believe. Maybe last. I, I
1: never years. wrote any. I, I haven't written Superman and Lois. I've I wrote uh, those they, Superman and the characters of Superman and Lois guest starred on Supergirl that I wrote, but I haven't actually written for their show.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Because sometimes when I'm watching the CW shows. Especially if it's like connected to the Arrow, the Arrowverse, I, I I might see a name just like, oh, he must be yeah. writing something, or maybe he's just like one of the supervisors. But I do want to ask, like, much later is like, oh, I, because the more recent episodes of server, I, I noticed that there's a term called supervising producer, and I noticed that was your name, and I I guess I could actually now it's like between producer, supervising producer, and exec producer what is like the main difference especially since you know producer just means oh by the way you know i'm i'm the one who not like like produce because it's weird because when i'm because i think of my you know film production classes and stuff like that producer just means oh i'm the one who gives money to this production i'm the one who's just essentially financing the production but in television what is the roles of uh, of, of essentially those three producers because I haven't actually seen supervising producer before.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's kind of complicated because in, in, in TV, a writer can be a producer or yeah. not. Uh, and a producer doesn't always have to be a writer. So we have what's called non-writing producers. Uh, sometimes a director is also a producer, um, which means that that director is sort of uh, works full-time on that show. Uh, So on Supergirl, we have a producing director named Jesse Warren, and he'll direct our season premiere and he'll direct the season finale and maybe one or two episodes in the middle somewhere. And then besides that, he's just on hand to help the visiting directors, because most directors just go from show to show to show to show to show show. Yeah, They're kind of hired guns. Uh, And he's there in case they need a little support or have questions or whatever. He's there to kind of help maintain the show, even if he's not actively directing it. So he's also a producer. And then you have producers who uh, are executives, uh, you know, like Greg Berlanti is one of our producers and Sarah Schechter is a producer. Uh, They're not actually writing the show, but they are part of the production company in charge of it. So they'll give notes on our scripts and they'll give notes on episodes and they'll be involved in casting big guest stars and, and that sort of thing, but they're not actually writers. Okay. Then writers, when you start out as a writer, when you get your first staff job, your rank is staff writer, which is like the lowest, that's like the rookie writer rank. And then after you're a staff writer, you're what's called a story editor. And then you're an executive story editor. And then you're a co producer. And then you're a producer. And then you're a supervising producer. And then you're a co executive producer. And then you're an executive producer. And so it's, it's just a, it's just a kind of a, a seniority, a rank for different writers. So as a supervising producer on Supergirl, uh, it it generally means that I'm uh, one of the mid slash upper level writers on the show. Uh, I have some seniority, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years at this point. Um, Yeah. uh, But my, what I contribute day to day isn't really that much different than somebody who's one level lower than me, uh, who's just a producer or a co-producer. Uh, we're all just writers and and writing on the show together. Uh, the executive producer, but the showrunner, is always an executive producer. So they're the they're the ones who make the big decisions.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a lot of times, a co-executive producer is what we call the number two. They're the kind of second in command. Uh, a lot of shows, the co-executive producer would be the one to kind of run the writers' room day to day, while the showrunner, you know, is often pulled in fifteen directions at once. You know, so they can be in the writers' room for a little while, but then they have to go to do a meeting, or go sit in editing, or go look at casting, that sort of thing. So the co-EP, the the number two, is there to just be this sort of steady, constant voice in the room to kind of guide as we break stories, you know, every day. Uh, So it's a long-winded way to say that uh, all those producer titles are really generally often just different ranks for the writers, different seniority levels, Hmm. basically.
0: Okay. now you, you mentioned that you've been doing this sort of like for the past ten years, and I know that two of your two of your former show, well, two shows that you worked on were previously Starcross and The Ringer were both on the CW. Uh, when you were brought on to to do Supergirl, uh, I don't want to say that the CW kind of like I don't want like met. Uh, uh, I, don't kind of, I don't want to say, like, uh, bad now, CW, but sometimes I, when I do watch CW shows, I do kind of, like, see, like, recurring cast members and stuff like current, recurring uh, uh, recurring creators, all, you know, stuff like that, too. Uh, when you were brought on Supergirl, were you mostly brought on for your past connection with the CW or from your, essentially, your connection to the DC lore because, you, oh, you were a DC writer?
1: Yeah, I was brought on mainly to be like the comic book guy uh, because they had had a guy on the show, uh, another writer uh, who had left uh, right before I joined. And he was a big comic book nerd and had a lot of that kind of comic book knowledge just hardwired into him. Uh, And so they had a a, a kind of a hole to fill. And so they were looking for somebody who had a lot of of comic book knowledge and also could write and, and had experience and that sort of thing uh so yeah i was brought in more because of my history as a comic book writer uh the fact that i had worked for the cw before helped uh yeah. but the both ringer and starcross cw has is a weird uh network because it's yeah. it's co-owned by warner brothers and cbs studios yeah and so the uh Starcrossed and Ringer were both produced by CBS Studios, whereas yeah. Supergirl was produced by Warner Brothers. Uh so uh even though I had worked for the CW uh before, I hadn't actually worked for Warner Brothers for, yeah. for their television department. So I was still, I didn't have any history there they could draw on. Uh but but it it certainly helped that I had been on CW shows before.
0: Now uh I, I did want to ask about, about Ringer and Starcross. Uh, how did you get into both of those shows? Because I'm, I'm trying to remember if Ringer and Starcross, they weren't comic based. But I'm, I'm not. Sure. Okay, yeah. I, I was, I was trying to remember if they were comic based. Because I, I kind of remember there was a, like a, like a crop of shows that they just were like, they they were like geared towards comic based shows, but they weren't comic based shows. Because I do remember Starcross as being like very young adult. Uh, yeah. type of thing, and uh, so how did you get into to work for both of those shows? Because I remember the the, the promotion for both shows like very vividly, or especially with Ringer, where it's like, oh, so good she's playing two characters. One is a twin that gets killed, and she has to yep. ha- play the character that she has to both play her twin and also the the twin that she's all- normally plays. Like how, like, yeah, how did you get into both shows?
1: That was, uh, Ringer was my first show and I got into that uh, through a program called the Warner Brothers TV Writers Workshop. And it's a, a lot of the studios have these programs that are designed basically to find and cultivate new talent. uh, And they're kind of boot camps. Uh, So with Warner Brothers, I had submitted a script and a couple essay questions and uh, they liked it enough. I, I was living in Seattle at the time writing comic books, and they liked it enough that I flew down and had a meeting with them. Uh, and I, I had or an interview, really. Um, and I did well enough on the interview that they accepted me into this uh, TV writers program. And there were, I think, 10 of us in there in, in total. Uh, and it was a Trying to think of how long it ran. It started up in like early November and ran through April, I want to say, and we would meet once a week for a few hours in the evening. And it was just kind of a training round. Uh, we would have a guest speaker every time. We would have a showrunner come in or a director or an executive uh, and just talk about different facets of the business. Uh, and we'd also have to write a script in the program. They would kind of simulate a writer's room experience. Yeah. Uh, and then after the program ended, the instructor would set up meetings on all the Warner Brothers shows that were airing at the time uh, to see if anybody wanted one of these writers. Uh, And there was an incentive where if, if one of these shows wanted one of us, uh, the Warner Brothers program would pay for us. So we were a free writer for the first 20 weeks of our job, basically. So it was kind of an incentive to get these showrunners to take a chance on new writers. And then obviously the idea is that you prove yourself in those first 20 weeks, and then the showrunner will find money in their budget to keep you on beyond that, uh, which is what happened in my case. Uh, So yeah, so I went through this program, took some meetings, really hit it off with the people uh, who created Ringer and they made me an offer and I joined the show and they liked me enough that they kept me on after my initial kind of free period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then sadly we were canceled after the first season.
0: Yeah. The sad fate of a lot of these shows is like there's a lot of good shows that are, you know come out, and then suddenly it's like, oh, after a season, uh, they get canceled because of either budgetary cuts or time slots, or mm-hmm. or the internet, or the network just wasn't just feeling the show. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I remember because I liked the idea of having essentially uh, two twin characters like. And, the, like, like playing your own twin trope has always been around, you know, it's like there's, like, Freaky Friday and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, and you do, and there's also, and it was a mystery show, too, so it's, like, mystery would be, like, a ideal show, too, because, one, you know, aside from, like, say, the Law and Order type of shows, there's hardly any good mystery shows around. I mean, there are mystery shows around, but... Uh, and I would normally see this on your Twitter, too, is, like, you would, you know, like, post about shows that, you know, would have suffered, like, the one season fate, where I think, uh, like, I remember, I'm not sure if you post about the show, but uh, I remember Terriers was a good show where it was, like, oh, it was about two privatized in, I believe, L.A. or the, the L.A. San oh, San Diego, okay. I don't, I don't know why, I always think it's always L.A. <laughs> well, it usually uh, is. <laughs> yeah, and and it's like i like the idea of oh there's like these two pr- down and out prior and it's like you would think it's like they would have a good at least two three seasons worth of a show but sometimes networks just cut off the show for whatever reason it's usually because of oh, budgetary cuts or
1: but it's you know, usually it's usually time. just ratings just not enough and, people yeah. who watch
0: yeah yeah and, and ooh, sorry the and the sad faith is that a lot of, a lot of shows do do usually don't do well because of ratings and, you know, um, I remember there was, you know, uh, another superhero show that came out like 10 years ago, The Cape, which was, you know, yeah. it was on NBC and it was an original, it was an original show, it was about a guy who had like a magical cape, well not magical cape, but it was like some sort of weird cape thing and all that stuff and and if you watch Community, you know, one of the main characters has a great fascination with that show. And yeah. and when you do watch one of these shows and you, and you know it's like, oh, but probably, and I think usually the key thing is like, if it has like 13 episodes, like a season, you know, the network isn't really feeling the show or they're just like testing it out because sometimes 13 episodes does mean, oh. They're just testing it out, or it's got to be a mid-season show. If the mid-season, if they, if the ratings prove to be a great, prove to be gr- good mid-season, they'd probably add it on as a full show in the fall or what have you. But yeah, it definitely does feel like ratings do feel. Uh, does feel like um. A factor with a lot of these shows, especially if it's like a one. That's, season. That's,
1: it's it's the factor. I mean that yeah, that's that's yeah. The, that's the defining factor. Is is are enough people watching this show for us to keep airing it? Uh, yeah. And these days, it's it's especially with with CW. Uh, it's a combination of ratings over the air, like when it's broadcast on television, and then also yeah. how many people are watching it on the CW app or when it goes to Netflix. That sort of thing, like these yeah. these window. Uh, so, so with CW in particular, it, it, you can have a show that may not be doing great ratings when it airs, but it does great on the app, or it does great yeah. in like so. That's enough to justify keeping it on the air, and and you know the money that it costs to make the show. Uh, yeah. So that's almost always what it comes down to: is are enough people watching it to, yeah. to justify making it?
0: Uh, so yeah, and back to the CW and uh, and. to my original point i don't know how i got into a long traction or if i got mixed somehow but when you mentioned invincible uh and and now invincible is actually one of amazon's like one of amazon's originals best shows uh, especially with the amount of people who will watch it and and stuff like that too uh like 10 years ago when when someone had tried and, and again to use the cape as, as an example, when somebody tried to do a superhero show, it wouldn't really pass like a one season thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Arrow came out and then suddenly it was like, oh, you know, superhero shows could have like longevity and all that stuff. Um, when you were, and when you were brought onto Supergirl, uh, this was like maybe, I, I want to say this, this is like maybe the, the third, not third, this is probably like the sixth year into this, the Arrowverse, so to speak. So yeah, uh, at, at least half of a decade into, mm-hmm. like, into these shows. Yeah. Uh, did you see, like when Arrow came out to where you are now, did you see like, oh, eh, Arrow will probably be around for like a couple of seasons or did you see it like literally being but the Green Arrow is a famous, you know, Green Arrow is one of the great DC heroes so having a show based around a character that essentially uses a bow and arrow and stuff like that too, you know, that may feel like, oh, you know, how many seasons could they, you know, make a show out of that? So compared to like Superman where it's like, oh, you could probably make like, like in the case of Bill, you know, you could probably make like 10 seasons worth of Will he actually put on his shooter or not? So, so, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were, like, when Arrow first came out to where you are now, did you really, did you see how successful the CW uh, superhero shows Arrowverse would be? Or was it just like something like, wow, this is really, really unprecedented?
1: Uh, well, I mean, when Arrow first came out, you, you'll probably remember, like, they, they really kind of shied away, they downplayed yeah the superhero comic book stuff it was very grounded and gritty yeah and it wasn't till what was it early season 2 when they introduced yeah. Barry Allen and they started doing the flash and then they just kind of widened it kind of what what they could accomplish uh and introduced more and more comic book elements and they found that people liked that and it just sort of blossomed and you had flash and you had supergirl and legends uh yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think it probably took everybody a little bit by surprise, because you could see them sort of figuring out what Arrow was, because yeah. it, it started off so grounded. And then, you know, by the end, he's the specter, for God's sakes. It, uh, it, it's, it's crazy. Uh, so I don't think anybody really, like, when they launched Arrow, they didn't set out to say, okay, and in season two, we're going to spin off Flash, and in season three, we're going to do this it all just kind of snowballed because it was successful yeah. and they found that that, and, and I think part of it also is that technology has advanced to a point where you can successfully do superhero stuff on a TV budget. You can have people flying around, you can have special effects that actually look pretty good uh, as opposed to, you know, the shows that we grew up on in the eighties and nineties or whatever that weren't, you know, they, they were a lot cheaper looking and and you had to kind of, Suspend your disbelief and 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 not cringe at some of the bad effects, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, of but now it's it's much more achievable.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Speaking of the the uh, the shows of the past, I, like I would actually see clips of Super uh, The Adventures of Superboy, and I'm like, oh, it's like uh, there's this weird dream where Superboy is think- uh, thinking he's a robot, and he's like, oh, They're like you could tell this is like made in the 1980s. It's like you could just yeah. tell, like, and. For what is worth, the Flash that was on the CBS show in the 1990s, mm-hmm. they had exceptional uh, special effects given the time frame that they had. Yeah, they did. I'll get the the, the time. Yeah, not only the time the time frame, but also the, the budgetary they had, and also yeah. making someone believe to to be like the most fastest man alive, all that stuff, and mm-hmm. not you know, you know, you know. When I do watch the Flash, especially of the previous Flash, the, the one very album that um, the strip plays, it's amazing to watch because to know is like, this is essentially like, almost like the anchor to where the hour verse is, because if it wasn't for the Flash of the 1990s, well, I, I wouldn't say the Flash of the 1990s, you know, there was Wonder Woman too. And if, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for like Wonder Woman, uh, Bat, you know, the the N the West Batman and, the Flash series of 1990, uh, the nineteen ninety Flash series, they probably wouldn't be a anchored, uh, anchored Arrowverse series as it is. But speaking of those characters, I have to ask about Crisis on the Infinite Earths because mm-hmm. I know you wrote one of those, and, and you know you headlined one of the stories, which is essentially the first story, uh, the first part, uh, and you know. And the idea of the DC multiverse has always been a factor, and especially in the comics, you know, uh, that one of the biggest storylines was called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. And like, uh, Crisis on, uh, it was like infinite crisis and then another Infinite crisis. And there's like, whenever DC has a crisis, it's like, okay, what, and what kind of crisis is it now? Um, when you were, when they were in the production of Prices of information Infinite Earths, like, how, like, was it gonna be like, oh, by the way, we're gonna make all these things that has happened over the past, like, say, 30 to 50 years in terms of, like, DC medium, like, can? Uh,
1: basically, yeah. I mean, it, 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 uh, The original intent was just to merge, was basically to put Supergirl on the same earth as the other heroes and and to use Crisis to do that. Uh, And we were fortunate that Mark Guggenheim, who who kind of uh, show ran the Crisis crossover, is a huge comic book nerd, huge, 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 and loved uh, Crisis. And and everybody in that Crisis room were all big nerds. Uh, And so we would just, you know, come up with a kind of a wish list of, what other characters from these past iterations do we think we could get? Uh, and then it was just, who can we afford? Who's available? Who, you know, who, who you
0: know,
1: some of them were uh, not crucial to the story. They were just yeah. kind of fun cameos, but then others like having Brandon Routh uh, play yeah. Superman again, like that yeah. was vital to our story. Uh, yeah. and, and so, yeah, the, the idea was to just do as much as we could to to kind of embody the spirit of that epic crossover from the comics and replicate it as as best we could uh, on on tv and i it's still one of my favorite things we've ever done it was so much fun
0: yeah it, it is one of the best uh, the the one of the best crossovers i've actually seen in in quite some time because you know it's because like the like the um the title says there's infinite possibilities of like what type of characters would you you know call upon? Is like would John Cryer's Lex L- Luthor actually meet Lenny Luthor from his yeah. past so Like you know I, I kind of doubt you want to have like that sort of like scene. Whereas like you have Lenny meeting uh Lex, I mean uh, you know so- something to that effect. But you could, but seeing Brandon Ralph play Superman again, especially after what happened with Superman Returns and how yeah it was kind of like even though. Superman Returns was, I mean, Superman Returns is a very good film, it's just that, you know, it's just not one of, you know, it's more along the lines of portraying Superman as an actual character as opposed to just saying, hey, you know, he's a hero and stuff like that too, so it definitely does feel like, but with the crisis and seeing Superman, you know, Ralph, Superman, especially back, it's like, it's amazing, especially since, you know, in previous crossovers, you know, Ralph, you know, uh, Ralph, um, Ray Palmer and you Kara know, would be like joking, like, oh, you know, he, you know, uh, he reminds me of my cousin. And then they would just yeah. look at each other and it's like, that little, you know, like, that little, like, <laughs> like, hey, remember that, you know, that thing? So, And then I'd be like, as when, you know, when Crisis was, you know, when Crisis on Infinite Earths was Starting, I was like, oh my god, you know, there's Robert Wool as Alexander Knotts, You know, there's Burt Ward as Decoration. I'm like, these you are know, the characters that I grew up with. I'm like, as a writer, you know, especially if you're doing you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, especially as a comic book writer, I feel like that, you know, it, that's basically. Uh, and then you know, late and then later on, like the next episode, you have literally have Kevin Conroy play Batman, something that people have been wanting to see for like for the past like 20 years in live action form, and granted it is like a form of Batman, but the moment he starts speaking, you know, like, oh, evil Batman or not, is, this is Batman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, we, when, when it came to do with, like a writer's room for that thing and all that stuff, like, was it easy to, to think about, okay, this is the start of the crisis. I mean, this is the start of part one. This is the start of part five or the end of I would say like the end of Act 3, or what happened. Was it an easy road, I mean, was it an easy road to navigate compared to, like, previous Yeah, it,
1: it came, well, I mean, I didn't work on the previous crossover, so I can't speak oh, yeah. to that, but the, it came together remarkably easily. Uh, part of it was, was again, because of Mark Guggenheim. I, If I remember right, he kind of came into the room with a rough, rough blueprint already. Uh, and we had the comic, and so we just kind of took the major beats of the comic and, and, you know, kind of translated them for these five hours. Yeah. Uh, and it was a matter of like, Oh, let's, you know, here, this would be a good end of that end of the first hour cliffhanger. And, you know, the end of the second hour, this is the cliffhanger. And then, and, and we just kind of, but it, it did come together pretty quickly. The room only met three or four times maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it came together remarkably fast and, and, uh, I think it's a testament to Mark's leadership and the other writers that we had assembled. It really was sort of a Justice League of writers. Everybody uh, was super excited and uh, everybody had great ideas and it it really just worked really well.
0: Now, you mentioned this term a couple of times, which is essentially the writer's room. Uh, What exactly does a writer's room uh, go through essentially per episode? Is it just basically... uh, Right before we do a, each episode, we pitch out ideas like, oh, this week on Supergirl, um, horror will be facing Lex again. Uh, Lex is like saying, oh, I'm going to be uh, tainting the water or something like that or or some evil scheme.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's I mean, the writer's room works kind of uh, nonstop throughout the course of the season. Uh, the writer's room is pretty much at least on Supergirl, for instance, on the shows I've worked on uh, have all been kind of room heavy shows, which means yeah. that all the episodes are broken collaboratively in the room together. Um, And it's basically, yeah, you just, uh, you talk through an episode, you know, here's what we think this episode we want to be. You know, the showrunner is always the decider who says yes or no to any of these pitches. Um, And uh, you just kind of talk it out together. and, And you usually know at the start of the episode who's actually writing it, which writer is assigned to it. And that person will generally kind of take a more active role in, in the pitching and development. Hmm. Uh, and then once the episode is kind of fleshed out and you know what happens in every scene, that writer goes off and actually writes it, while the writer's room then focuses on, okay, what's the next one about? And the first step is to usually, because these shows are so serialized, to just, you know, where do we leave off? Yeah. What do we owe? you know, what What do we have to resolve in this episode? What, where are we picking up the pieces? Uh, and then, you know, you just start building the episode again from there and the process repeats itself. Uh, and it just, and then the writer who was off writing their episode, once their script is done, they circle back into the room and then they're kind of fresh and ready to help pitch on, you know, you're now one or two episodes ahead. Uh, yeah. and they just It's just kind of a cycle like that.
0: Yeah, because uh, I always wondered, like, what is the the process of writing a season premiere? And then, you know, it's like, oh, well, we're writing a season premiere, but we also have to need to plan out the, the season ahead, especially since I yeah. know you wrote the season premiere of season five. Mm-hmm. And, well, and a couple of the, the season, and I know you've written more, you know, other episodes of, of the show. But when you're writing a season premiere, it's like, do you have that notion of this is what the theme of the season is going to be? Because... Season five, and I do want to get into season five in a couple of moments because I have to ask about the COVID stuff. But mm-hmm. when you were writing the season five, especially since the the season five narrative was essentially, oh, uh, not technology was bad, but essentially uh, addictive technology was going to be like the, the form of like the vil- the like the motif of like people being a for uh uh people being addictive to this new technology where it's like, oh, it's VR, but it's not like like the thing where it's like, oh, it's VR, but it's not like the the VR where it's just like, oh, yeah, right, you gotta know, run like that sort of thing. Like,
1: yeah. I mean we at the start of every season, we take uh, probably two weeks and and just sort of talk broadly about the season itself, not just the premiere, but like what do we want our theme for this season to be? What is our underlying theme? And for season five, it was sort of technology and, and uh, you know, kind of the dark side of technology. Uh, and so we would talk about that for a couple of weeks and, and kind of what do we want to build towards? Who's our big villain? Uh, and just sort of flesh out some of those broad, broad strokes and maybe put in, we, we would literally put up on a board episodes one through you know, 20, however many we were doing that year. And then we would sometimes put in some goalposts of, okay, in episode six, we think this is where this big thing will happen. And probably in episode 11, this other big thing will happen. Uh, and sometimes those shifts. Sometimes that big thing ends up happening in episode five or in episode yeah. seven, or we don't do it at all. Um, but, but by the time it's time to actually start writing the premiere, we've been talking about the season itself for a couple of weeks. And by that point, we kind of have, okay, here's how this story should kick off. And then we kind of break that episode.
0: Now, as I mentioned before, it's like season five was really... Season five and the bulk of a lot of other shows itself, not necessarily uh, Hourverse shows, but it sounds like the bulk of a lot of the shows were affected by COVID because of uh, productions shutting down, uh, people needing to figure out how to wrap up a season. Uh, Yeah. How... Because I know... Uh, the, the the not necessarily the final. This wasn't exactly the 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 final episode of season five, but it was essentially wrapped up like ne- say like ninety five percent or so, and then we had like five, you had like essentially five more percent to be filmed. And then if you watch season six, the like the premiere of season six is essentially like the the season finale of season five. Yes. Uh, from a production standpoint. Like, how well, I don't want to say it worked chaotic, but like, where okay, from a production standpoint, like, what was uh, like, how bad was it as a from a production standpoint?
1: It, I mean, I don't really have a frame of reference because I've never been through a, 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 a pandemic shutdown before, uh, but it wasn't it was chaotic, but it wasn't that bad. I was in Vancouver, we were shooting. What was going to be the season five finale, episode twenty, uh, and we had shot—I would say seventy-five percent of it, maybe at that point. And at, by that point, things were just so bad that, that the decision was made to shut down production, and yeah. we would figure it out later. And so we did, and and uh, you know, we we basically ended up. Um, just making episode nineteen our season finale because it ended on a cliffhanger anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know that we ch- we might have changed a little bit of nineteen, but I don't think we did. Uh, and then twenty was just kind of repurposed into uh, being our new season premiere. And you know we we owed some footage and we wrote some new scenes to to kind of adjust the transition because it changed where we were going in season six. Um, and then it was just a matter of, you know, the writers were still working, uh, but, you know, we took some time on the production side to just figure out how to safely shoot uh, during the pandemic. And, and they figured out how with testing and social distancing and safety protocols and everything uh, that we were able to, we, I don't, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think we ever had to shut down. Once, once we started shooting again, uh, we never had to shut down. We didn't have any COVID outbreaks on our, on our crew that required us to shut down. So that was, uh, really lucky and a testament to, uh, our, our great crew and how, uh, attentive they were to the safety protocols. And I think it's also just a little bit of good luck. Um, but it, it, uh, if You ask my showrunner how chaotic it was, he may have a very different answer because I wasn't privy to everything, he's the one whose shoulders it was on. Uh, I'm sorry, he both of them, Robert and Jessica. Um, uh, but it, it was chaotic, but but there was a steady hand, and, and we got yeah. through it.
0: Uh, and picking up on uh, uh i was about to say series six on season six, uh, I know it was like because before. With, uh, because in the premiere of Supergirl of this season, uh, Kara essentially gets trapped into the, the Phantom Zone. Was this made mm-hmm. primarily, and, and this was probably made my primarily so that Melissa Benoist could have, like, maternity leave.
1: But exactly.
0: For, for the next, like, say, several episodes. Because this happened before when she was on Broadway a few years ago uh, mm-hmm. with uh, beautiful, uh, the, the story of Carol Caroline King. When you have to deal with uh, an actor or an actress who essentially has to take a, some, uh, who can't essentially work this episode or maybe two episodes, how do you essentially work around to say, oh yeah, you know, by the way, you know, uh, char- this character won't be here for the next couple of episodes because uh, uh, the actor has to get an operation and then by, and by the time they come back, you know, they may have a cast. So it's like, oh, by the way, you know, the character might have to have that cast on just to say hey um, I did something stupid and crashed right into my car or something
1: like that it it sort of depends on the circumstance and and the actor uh you know if it's your lead like with us with Supergirl like it, it requires a lot of conversation and and creative thinking uh if it's a minor character you could just say oh they're off visiting grandma this week you yeah. know and we just show up again the following week. We, what we did with, uh, for Melissa's pregnancy was, you know, we wrote the, the storyline where she gets banished to the Phantom Zone, uh, but it was important to, for the network that we still have Supergirl in every episode in some yeah. capacity, as much as possible. Uh, and so we wrote these little Phantom Zone scenes. So she had her own storyline while she's in the Phantom Zone. And then we just shot everything except that stuff. And then once she came back from maternity leave, we had blocked out a few days where we just shot all of her scenes in the Phantom Zone and then kind of edited them into the episodes uh, where we left the gaps. Um, so they were all filmed kind of after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other. There was an instance uh, once where an actor had a, a personal family emergency and wasn't able to be on set uh, for an episode or for part of an episode. Uh, and, and she was crucial to what we were doing. And so we had to have a body double and we had a body double. So we would shoot over her shoulder or we would shoot in long shots. And then kind of like what we did with Melissa, after the fact, we went in and picked up her coverage, which is picked up the scenes wherever we're on this actor's face. And we shot those few scenes after the fact. And again, just kind of edited them into the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, it's not uncommon to have to use body doubles and photo doubles yeah. and sort of thing uh to cover the other actors scenes uh where you're just seeing the back of this person who may not really be there that sort of thing yeah,
0: because i remember when melissa was on broadway uh supergirl oh it was like it was tying into the previous season where she had essentially uh, I, I think kryptonite poisoning so she, uh you know she had to be in a uh, essentially a, an iron man like suit for the next like say several episodes where right. compared to you know this season, uh, right as she beats Lex for uh, uh, for the, for the team time, you know, she gets trapped into the Phantom Zone. So kind like, so it kind of like explains why she's not gonna be in the active storyline, right? Like for the first like eight eight or so episodes, compared to where it's like, oh, you know, previously she was just like on Broadway, so it's like you know that that sort of thing. So it, I I always wonder is like. Like, is it an e-, e like yeah? Is it an easy fix to f- to uh to work with that or is it just?
1: Uh, I mean, it's not easy. It's it is it is hard. It's hard on the actors who have to act against you know somebody who's not, uh, not the actor. Um, it, it's just hard on scheduling because it, it makes scheduling things a lot more difficult. Uh, but you know we do it. We we we've done it. We made it work. Um. Uh, and you know it's the kind of thing, especially in 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 the instance of of a pregnancy. You know we're happy to do it. it, it it's it's good news. We're, uh, but it it's not easy.
0: Yes, uh, very good news too. And uh, it's and a very easy. And i wouldn't say easy, but it takes a lot more time. Uh, it, it allows the actress to essentially have some time off while yeah. having the to have time off too. So. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, and now, uh, and you mentioned this on Twitter before, uh, you were supervising productions via computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that work? I mean, I got understand it being like remote work for uh, production work. Uh, compared to when you were on set, is it essentially the same job or do you just like, okay, I'm just sitting at the computer for like, for 18 hours a day or something like that, just watching
1: the video? It's it's a little of both. And this is, I got to go after this question. Um, Okay, no problem. um, Yeah, because when you're on set, you're sitting there in what they call video village, where you have little monitors of, uh, you're seeing on your monitors exactly what the camera is shooting. Uh, And some, you know, we often have two cameras going at the same time, so you're seeing both of these screens. And you're usually sitting there right next to the director. And so if what you're seeing on screen isn't what you envision in the script, you can say, "Hey, you know, I think I think the character should be angrier than the actors playing it," or you know, whatever note you might have. Uh, with COVID, they still had that video village, uh, but they also had kind of a remote as- uh, option where I had an app that I could just open on my computer or on my Apple TV that would show me those same two video feeds of oh. what the camera was shooting at all times. Uh, and then I just had a constant uh, chat chain or text chain going with the director, like, "Oh, this one looks good," or you know, she would ask me questions, or I would, you know, give her notes or or whatever, uh, and or or over phone over the phone, um, it was challenging because you're just sort of. It's always challenging to give a note because you don't want to give a note to an actor too early. You want to let them try to find the performance on their own, but if you wait too late you know, I've had it happen before. where like, I want to give a note. And then the director says, okay, moving on, we got it. And you're like, oh crap. I wanted to give a note on that performance, but now we're moving on. Yeah. Uh, that made it harder because there was a lag. What I was seeing wasn't always exactly happening. I might've been five or 10 seconds behind what yeah. uh, so made timing, you know, trying to get the director's attention. Cause sometimes they're not looking at their phone. If I want to text them, they're doing their job, looking at the camera. Um, so that made it a little bit harder, just just to 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 be right uh, on top of, of of what's being shot. But fortunately, this is us showing its sixth year, uh, and most of the directors we used during this process, I believe, have worked on the show before, uh, and so they knew the show, they knew the cast, uh, and so it was. There were never any huge issues that that got affected that you know I couldn't fix because I wasn't there. Um, it was, it was directors who, are, who, who knew their jobs. And and it and the actors at this point, they've been on the show for six seasons. They know their characters just as well, if not better than I do. Uh, so it, it really, it wasn't that big an issue.
0: Now, I know you just said you had to go in a couple of seconds, but right before we wrap up, uh, sure. social media wise, I, I usually do like three other questions that are fairly easy. Social media wise, you could probably find him on, you could probably find Jay on Twitter. He's very vocal on, stuff that he loves, especially old 80s TV shows, uh, him about Magnum P.I., he'll probably talk a lot about Magnum P.I. Yeah, you regret
1: Uh, that question. (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, uh, Especially since Magnum P.I. is also a summer show, since I'm filming this in the start of summer, actually, too. Uh, I I do have one important question, especially though, uh, and it's about people who are either going into the comic industry as a writer, Mm -hmm. artist, what have you, And those who are going into production, especially as a production person, what kind of advice do you have to those who are essentially going into either paths? Mm -hmm. Boy, (laughs) I think in terms of comics,
1: my advice is to just, uh, you know, if you're going in as a writer is to just read and write as much as you can. You know, the, the, the best way to get better at writing is to just keep writing, it, is that practice makes, not perfect, but it makes it easier. Um, uh, and, and it's a great time to get into comics, I think, because there's so many options. Uh, the internet has been kind of the great equalizer. You can, you know, if you have a book that you can't find a publisher for, but you believe in it, you can put it on the internet for free and people can still read it and it, it, it exists. Um, and it can become a calling card uh, you know, that could be your ticket into getting work from actual publishers, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of going into, you know, the TV or movie industry, uh, you know, that, that's a sort of different landscape, um, it's still possible now with iPhones and, and, and all that kind of stuff to, to make short films on your own, uh, yeah. which I would advise people to do, it's, it's also easy to do it yourself these days, um, But it's also important, I think, in in getting into that aspect of the business to have a good network is is to make friends who are kind of at the same level as you are, other people aspiring to break in. Uh, I think it's important not to treat those people as your competition, but to treat them as your your network, your circle of friends. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are at the same level as I am. and, And sure, sometimes we're up for the same jobs, but there are plenty of times where we're not. And you know, I may be up for a job or I may, there's a job I want, and I can call a friend of mine who knows that showrunner from a previous show and, and, you know, might put a word in for me, that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I think, you know, Hollywood can be kind of a lonely town when you're new. Uh, and so it's, it's to your benefit to, to kind of build your social circle, find the, the people, uh, and, and you can, you know, Twitter is a great place to do that, to network, uh, and, and find like-minded people that, that can kind of uh, be on this journey with you, I guess, and, and can give you advice and you could give them advice and just kind of a mutual support society.
0: And on that note, I think that's a great way to, to end the season of mirror, <laughs> and a great way to show where I gonna be going with this season, because I'm again, I'm not sure where I'm going with this season. I'm gonna try and do specialty episodes. Like I'm gonna try and get another comic artist or person who has worked in comics for the next episode that might change if not we'll just see how it goes but Jay thank you again for taking the time to schedule to essentially talk to me about not only comics but also working on the other side of the camera which is essentially the writer the writer on a TV show uh, yeah
1: it's great fun uh,
0: that has been the season one that has been episode one of season six and I hope you all Take care. Until next time, be well.